0: you get paid a lot of money to do this. So I can't be, he's like, nah, man, I don't think you understand. I've never driven a car with a roof on it. And he genuinely was like, he was curious. He asked lots of questions and he was awful for a half a lap. Understandably, there's some adapting to do between a a winning Red Bull F1 car and uh, what is some guy that worked at the airport's Honda Civic I bought on Craigslist.
1: Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we've got Texas Dave joining us. Uh, Dave is a longtime friend of HPA. I think we met him back at SEMA about 10 years ago, where he had his Evo Hillclimb car on display. Since then, we've also had the pleasure of visiting Dave at his rally ranch in Texas. Dave runs the Rally Ready driving school and arguably in my opinion rallying is one of the most exciting forms of motorsport. It's nothing quite like watching WRC and seeing these drivers fly sideways at huge speeds through forest roads where they've only got bare millimetres of space to spare on the outside of a corner. This is a real true test of the driver's ability to control the car on the absolute limit, particularly across changeable conditions and particularly when the drivers, other than reconnaissance, don't necessarily get a chance to see what's coming up. This also really comes back to the fact that it is not a one person sport, rallying relies heavily on the co-driver and their input, particularly in producing and then reading back the pace notes so that the driver knows exactly what's Coming up. There's a lot to take in here. And for those who are interested in rallying, this is some great information from Dave on. All manner of rallying in general including driving techniques, front wheel drive versus rear wheel drive versus four wheel drive might surprise you there which is the best platform to get started with. And on that basis we also talk in depth about if you are interested in getting involved in grassroots, uh, hill climbs on gravel or rallying, what is a sensible path to go down? Obviously it's going to depend a little bit on exactly whereabouts in the world you are. Now before we get into our chat with Dave, for those who are new to the podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune EFI systems, how to build performance engines, how to construct reliable wiring harnesses. We also cover race driver education, data analysis and even fabrication topics as well. Now while it's a little bit off the path of rallying specifically, for those who are interested in improving their skill behind the wheel, you may be interested in our Race Driving Fundamentals course. Now I'll admit this is quite squarely focused on tarmac or uh, closed circuit road racing applications but there's a huge amount of information that is still relevant here and particularly one of the aspects that Dave really drums into us through this podcast is vision is so important. What I mean by that is whereabouts the driver is looking when you're out on the rally stage or out on the race circuit. And this is an absolute critical element to nail down, making sure that you are looking far enough ahead of where the car is. It gives you a better sense of what's coming up, it tends to slow down time for you and also gives you a much better opportunity to react to what's coming up on the road ahead. And again, with rallying where you don't necessarily know what's going to be around that next corner, this is just so important. If you are interested in that course, we'll drop a link in the show notes and And as a podcast listener, you can also use the coupon code podcast seventy five, and that'll get you seventy five dollars off the purchase of your first HPA course. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's get into our chat with Dave now. All right, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, There's a saying that I think you actually told me that uh, road races see the same corner a thousand times, and rally drivers see a thousand corners one time. It's a very big difference between the two disciplines of motorsport, and I'm interested just to start with, what was it that drew you to rally over road racing?
0: Yeah, I think the uh, the fundamental difference for anybody who who is drawn to rally is is probably the same as the difference between somebody who's drawn to mountain biking versus you know traditional like Tour de France style road bikes, right? Like it's there's just a, a very different principle. Of finesse and craft as as a driver versus the sort of scientific approach. I often tell students in our in our class, if you look at Audi with a you know Michelin P two C or whatever at at uh, Sebring with an ambient temperature of X and you know Tom Christensen as a driver, their software tells them what that lap time is. And in rallying, there's just too many dynamic variables, and it's up to the driver to really adapt and overcome that. And I think as a kid who grew up you know skateboarding, BMX biking all that stuff like it it was a natural progression so yeah first time I played Gran Turismo in a rally car just like the fluid nature of connecting corners and and understanding that that line choice was so much more different and I don't want to say abstract but um yeah not quite as as formulaic as it was in a circuit racing car it was game over yeah
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I have never been involved in, in rally but it's certainly something that, that appeals and it. it is clearly a, a very different set of skills although there's there's a lot of crossovers there. Just taking what you've just mentioned and sort of going a little deeper, are you essentially saying in, in a road racing application you give the same pro- properly professionally prepared race car to two professional drivers, we could expect lap times within perhaps a tenth of a second or less but give the same professionally prepared rally car to two different drivers and they could expect to extract quite different times over a a given stage.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, some people will disagree, you know, last, last uh, week we were in at the Oregon trail rally and I was talking to Travis Pastrana and Brandon Semenuk who were teammates on the Subaru factory team. And they were like, oh man, we're, you know, we're six seconds apart. That's an eternity at this level. And I'm like, yeah, but also it's not because you see the same thing with Toyota's factory drivers and the WRC, those guys will, will be fighting and they'll say that was a perfect stage and he'll get beat by his teammate by four or five seconds on a single stage. So, you know, it, it really is, there's, there's just so many variables. I think people don't recognize your road position. You know, if you're fifth on the road versus first on the road, you have a completely different surface. You know, like the, the humidity changes the track in such a dramatic way. I mean, everything is so staggeringly dynamic and rallying. Um, your confidence in the car can change so quick.
1: We do hear exactly on that point, uh, the, the drivers that are first on the road particularly on, on a stage that is heavy gravel uh, are referred to as sweeping the road and, and that puts them at a dis- distinct disadvantage, You're kind of leading into what you were just saying. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about what, what sweeping the road actually means and why, why that's likely to make you slower?
0: Yeah. So if you think about the way a gravel road is constructed, uh, you come into a forest area, you, you scrape all the topsoil off, you'll crown up, um, usually like some of the existing roadway and then you'll bring in a huge heavy rock base and you'll roll and compact that rock base. And then you'll address it with gravel. Obviously this is dramatically different even, I mean, where you are, you know, the roads, the, the gravel roads can change pretty dramatically, you know, in 20 or 30 K cause the nearest quarry is a different material. So, your, your construction is going to vary, but but you're always going to have loose rocks or marbles on top of a really hard-packed dirt and rock surface. So um, when you come in in a rally, the first cars are sliding across all of the loose marbles. So you have really limited grip. You're throwing all that stuff into the woods, and the dust plume is huge. By the third, fifth, seventh car on the road, a lot of that really loose stuff is swept off, and you have a really clearly defined line. The further back in the field you get, that sort of plateaus and then reaches a point of diminishing return where you start to wear through that that really beautiful hard packed um, race line, and you start to get into to more rocks and you erode into like sort of a, a two track. But yeah, there's an ideal place to be in that in that running order, uh, and that's huge, especially in like the world championship when you're dealing with the top equipment on planet Earth, top drivers. Those guys want like this exact perfect window. But unfortunately, the faster you are, the the worse your road position is.
1: <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse.
0: Yeah, it always is.
1: Let's dive back a a little bit back this this truck up a, a touch and and kind of get a feel for how you got involved in in motorsport cars right from the get go. So so how did that passion sort of get born?
0: You know, uh, I grew up here in in Austin. I'm just outside of Austin now at, at our rally ranch. But um, I grew up like any good kid of the nineties, uh, you know, skateboarding and BMX biking and rollerblading and whatever other thing that had wheels that would go fast and, and rip the skin off of your body unwillingly. And, uh, then I started playing in some like punk rock and hardcore bands when I was a teenager and we were booking, you know, sometimes five shows a week, like every single night loading all the drums and gear in my mom's van. Cause we were all 14 and she'd, you know, take us down and we'd play shows with like all the coolest old eighties, hardcore and skate punk bands. And some of the guys that I was playing in bands with who were in their, like, you know, early 20s at the time were super into cars. And and they were all, you know, street racing, miscellaneous, f- terrible, slow Hondas uh, that, like, you know, you were killing it if you had a GSR swap and were running, you know, low 15s. It just, like, the the illegal outlaw version of that didn't appeal to me, although it's very hard to do anything illegal when your car takes, like, nine seconds to hit 60 miles an hour. Um <laughs> But that part, I just didn't, that didn't click for me. And so I was playing on, uh, I was just hanging out at one of those dudes' houses and they had a PlayStation and Gran Turismo 3. And uh, I was like, do you guys know there's Type R's in this game? You can just drive it. And they're like, mm hmm. I was like, so sick. And then, you know, as I progressed through the, you know, circuit racing and all the licenses and got into rallying, like the second that I drove a car and like linked, you know, three or four corners together, you know, and got the car sideways before the corner and was facing the forest and then came out perfectly online. I was like, Oh shit, this is it. This is the thing. Uh, and it just like, it just perfectly checked so many boxes of so many things that, that I loved, you know, the, like, it's the same thing as BMX, you know, you get the line just right or mountain biking and you hit that berm just right. And you lay the the bike down and then you, you know, rock it out of the corner and you land perfect on the transition over the jump. Like rallying was the the automotive equivalent of that and so I just decided when I was 15 like that's it this is my whole life I'm going to do this now everybody's like yeah okay cool man
1: good luck so give us the path from 15 to to sort of the point where you actually were competing in rallies maybe the the abbreviated version but uh yeah sort of how did that progress because that that's a big jump from a 15 year old potentially with I'm guessing no transport of your own at that time
0: that's accurate. Yeah. Uh, no transport or money. Yeah. I, I have two older sisters. They both went to out of state college and got degrees in modern dance and acting. So as was the youngest of three when I came to my dad and was like, dad, you're good. I'm dropping out of high school. I'm not going to college. I'm going to race cars. He's like, Oh, all right. Cool, man. Whatever. I just, I give up.
1: Like, Every parent's no, dream.
0: Yeah. No attorneys and doctors in this family. So w- over the course of about a year and a half of persuasion, Uh, I convinced my dad, it would be a good idea for us to spend my college money, which didn't exist on a rally car for my 17th birthday. So we drove to what is now the firm in Florida was, was formerly Ivo Wiggum's European rally school and bought a 98 Integra type R rally car that he had built from a totaled Integra. And then he crashed it about four times, sort of kind of hammered the quarter panel out. It was like a topo map. It was so textured. Um, (laughs) And he just was like, great. Yeah, here's every single thing that could possibly fit on this car. Get it out of my shop and send us on our way. And I parked it in my grandparents' garage when I got back to Texas because we didn't even have a garage at my house. And my dad's like, oh, man, he's going to have to get a job. He's going to have to, like, figure all this shit out on his own. This is going to be great. And instead, I found a shop in Austin who really wanted to go rally. And I was like, I've got a rally car. And, like, I'm totally a driver for sure. I definitely know how to drive this thing. And they were like, great. And they sponsored my first two events thinking like we're going to build a rally team and then they ran the uh the accounting report after those two events and we're like got it it's just all went away and no yeah no there's no return here got it And yeah uh, yeah so hey, it's about a sport for you that's the one yeah
1: so it sounds like you really just jumped straight in Hit first in the deep end and figured it out on 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 the way through. How how did you find your um PlayStation skill set translated to that integra?
0: Well the the problem is, and I have to tell this a lot to my students now in the rally school, is there's no start button in the car, and that part's frustrating because like when it's going sideways, you're like, now just hit start down X up X, it'll restart the stage. Doesn't work that way. You know, I think 20 years ago was a slightly different world that was where like we were all sort of trying to convince ourselves that what we were doing in playstation was training you know for rallying with a controller but i still think that there's there's enough to be said for the right person about the feeling you get and the uh, just like the basic physics that you that you develop you know playing grand turismo or anything helps you understand what's happening with a car. I don't think it's anything like it is now where, you know, I've got this crazy fanatech sim rig over here with um, you know, billions of possible setup combinations that you can tailor to to basically, you know, mimic or match the dynamics of whatever car, but but I I think there's more to it even then um than I think anybody gave it credit for.
1: it's well proven these days that uh, proper simulators are a viable and valid training tool. These aren't games like Gran Turismo. I will probably get offside with a few Gran Turismo lovers out there, but you know, the likes of of, of iRacing it's a, it's a genuine training tool for road racing. And um, I mean, we personally use Dirt Rally Two at uh, at the workshop uh, for having a bit of a play on gravel, and that it's it's huge fun. There's obviously a bit of a disconnect still there between Understanding how to choose a line, or you know what what's actually happening through a stage on a simulator versus you, you're not getting. First of all, there's no real downside. As you say, you can always escape out and just restart a stage. Uh, you don't have to pay for the panel beating uh, costs in, in a simulator. So that, that's one big disconnect. But obviously, you don't have the the G-forces that you're being exposed to either. So, you know, at, at some point, you've got to cross over and actually start putting those skills to use uh, in the real world, which segues nicely into uh, the rally ready driving school. And, um, I, mean, a couple of years ago, I had the pleasure before COVID hit of, of actually getting some one-on-one tuition at your rally ranch from you and it was a, a huge eye-opener Uh Really I don't think I've ever had so much fun in a car, it was great and coming from a background where I have a reasonable amount of experience in road race applications, hill climbs etc but but never on gravel or loose surfaces, uh, just the amount I needed to learn was quite, quite eye opening. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what the Rally Ready Driving School is and how that functions?
0: Yeah, we're a 140 acre former cattle ranch turned into a rally paradise. We're about a half hour outside of Austin. We're right by the Circuit of the Americas, the F1 track here in Texas. And yeah, I started the school cuz, you know, kind of segueing from the story we were just talking about, I I got a couple years into rallying and was like there's no there's no path here for me. I don't have any money. I don't have you know a, a big fancy inheritance or a rich grandpa who can bankroll me playing for the next you know two decades until somebody offers to pay me and so i kind of had to figure out what my my niche was to stay involved and you know you and i have spoken before about everybody kind of trying to understand that niche in motorsports and and you found a really remarkable niche with with uh, hp academy you know but before that how many other things did you try or were you involved in just to stay engaged with your passion in racing and that's something that i think You know, kids, uh, especially young people who are excited about getting involved with this industry as a whole, really need to be paying attention to is it's not it's play to your strengths, right? Understand who you are and and what you do well uh, and what you enjoy and find that ideally the intersection of things that you're really good at and things that you can tolerate doing for a long period of time. And so for me, that was mentoring and teaching. So we started the school actually a decade ago. This month was our first class. And the the kind of you know the the basic concept for what we did is we I just thought there was a more efficient way to to train people how to uh, drive on gravel and and loose surfaces, especially recognizing that like while rally is my passion and it's you know my life, a lot of other people like yourself are going to come here curious about the tools, but more interested in a broader approach to car control, and then from there we'll kind of refine it down. So we've got a one day and a two day rally school. We are adding our three and four day programs back this year. And then we do a ton of private coaching, obviously corporate events, bachelor parties, all that kind of stuff. But you know, the thing that I think makes our program really unique is I, I, I take a, a huge amount of energy into training our instructors, not on, on the car control side, but on understanding the, the human experience and on, on relating to people in a way that they feel really seen and, and valued, you know, this is sort of always going to be a high ego adversarial industry by default. It's a bunch of people who already think they know more shit than anybody else. And so somebody who is coming into this space is already like coming in, having to recognize that you have to come in with some level of humility, even to click the box that says, I want to learn from you. That's a huge step. So my guys and 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 the women that instruct here Their big focus is making sure that that people really like we understand not only what they're going through, but also that we're relaying back to them exactly what and how and why and when they succeeded. And then giving feedback on the things to work on in a a constructive space, Um, not with not trying to create like a a nursery where we coddle everybody, but just finding really simple ways to connect in that space. I found is huge because, you know, and and we'll talk a bit about co-driving. The same thing applies when you're dealing with a racing driver, you're dealing with somebody who's in lizard brain, right? They're, they're operating with a very small amount of their, of like, you know, fight or flight basically. So we have to be able to relay that information in a unique way. And like, if you look at our instruction, I mean, you did it with us. There's nothing special about the exercises. They're very simple. They're really broad so that we can have anybody from a new driver who's never even used a clutch before, to a rally driver who's been doing this for a couple decades and wants to tune up, or we had Daniel Ricardo out here, and it was the exact same approach with him. It's just like it doesn't matter what your skill level is; we're putting you in the same funnel.
1: I'll stop you there, Dave, because there's a bunch of stuff that I just wanted to sort of dig, dig yeah. into a little bit deeper. So, as you mentioned, you've got you're not the sole instructor; it's it's, it's bigger than bigger than just Dave now, and. When it comes to finding people who who are good at driving a rally car, th- there's probably a bunch of people out there. And then you also want a very different skill set, and I find this with our own business as well. There's a lot of people out there who can tune an engine or build an engine or construct a wiring harness. But you also need or we need someone who can also convey that information in a simple to understand format that other people can relate to. And, and often those skill sets are very, very different. I, I would probably hazard a guess that most professional rally drivers or racing drivers aren't real good at telling people why they're fast or what, what that other person is doing wrong. I, I, am I right in saying that? Is it difficult yeah. to find those instructors?
0: So it's difficult to find the instructors if you're looking in the wrong places. I think, you know, that that was the, probably one of the biggest epiphanies for me in the past decade was the moment, you know, first one was when I realized that I'm not special and it was like, you know, I have a really unique skill set in my ability to to build this and to teach and instruct, but like, I'm not so special that this can't be taught and replicated. So the idea that that I need to be the center of everything, that was the biggest relief for me about, you know, seven years ago was realizing there's other people who can do this as well or better than me. And focusing on lifting them up was way more important than making sure that I could be in every class. The second piece of that was recognizing that we're a facility that strives to put everybody that we possibly can into the seat of a rally car, because I think it's one of the most exceptional and empowering experiences that you'll ever have. Like you said, whether you've driven or not, just the sheer lunacy of what's happening in a rally car, when you can actually feel like you have total agency over that, it's completely life-changing, I think, for people. And I don't, I don't mean to, to say that, you know, hyperbolically. I, I genuinely think that is, whether you're a racing driver or not, to recognize that you can you can really lead a car that way is is huge. So if we're good at that and we know that we can do that with any any level of of skill that comes in the door, then why are we looking for rally drivers? So, you know, I mean, frankly, my, you know, like our whole trade secret is don't hire race car drivers. Look for (laughs) highly engaging, empathetic, interesting, charismatic people who have a high level of what I call gas or give a shit is our, is our internal acronym. Uh, if you find people who give a shit about what they're doing and and give a shit about the end product, then you can train them to drive a race car. And if you can train them to drive the race car and they've got all the other stuff, then it's going to fit naturally.
1: I think an important element of exactly what you're just saying there is, and this goes across training or coaching, I should say, for for just about any top level sport. Yeah, you know, the, the the people who are coaching Olympic athletes, they would not be getting gold medals. The athlete they're training is better than the coach, and that's absolutely okay. It's understanding the the technicalities of of whatever it is you're you're coaching and be able to see those errors or room for improvement in the person you're coaching. It doesn't need to say that you have to be able to do it better than that person. So I think that's important to to understand. I, I am interested in one element here, you've sort of said, you've you've roughly mentioned your clientele, people who have never been in a rally car or a race car before through to some uh, experienced rally drivers. And, and first of all, that must be a bit of humble pie to eat for someone who, as you say, there's ego involved in this sport. Uh, a rally driver who, who may have been competing for a decade or so, you know, actually Saying, "Hey, you know what? I've probably still got some things to learn." And when you see someone like that come through the doors at Rally Ready Driving School, you know what are the the common areas that those ha- that have some experience in rallying already? Where can you see improvements, or where can you gain improvements in time from that sort of clientele?
0: Yeah, it's it's hugely different depending on. I mean, obviously the individual, but uh, you know, there's just so many variables. One of the common things that we see. I think is probably most common in every form of motorsport is people can always work on their vision. You know, you, you, all that you have as a racing driver is you have eyes, they're a data collection tool. All you can do is put them where they need to go to get the collect data into your brain. Hopefully you have the training that, that all the neural pathways are, are, you know, going to the right places that the data you collect with your eyes, you send it to your hands and your feet and your hands and feet have to do all of the the work. So, you know, what, what, is most common as, as you know, and and we've discussed before is like people, uh, have a tendency to look really low with their eyes, right? They're they're just looking at what they're afraid to hit or what's really close to the car. And that's in rallying as in any form of motorsport is huge. Just getting people comfortable with where their eyes need to be. I mean, you could literally do nothing, but have people come here and just point and say, Hey, look there. Okay. Look there, look there, look there, look there. And they'll be like, wow, I improved by leaps and bounds. You go, yeah, great. Have a good one. So we always obviously start there and, and you're just constantly going back there because that tends to be the biggest Achilles. But one of the biggest things that we don't do a lot of time and energy on, but like is is not just, is understanding as a driver, a rally driver, where's your driving and where are your pace notes and where do we need to be pushing your driving and where do you need to be pushing your pace notes? You know, because that's kind of the the other part of the secret sauce with rally is you have... You have not just what's your ability to operate a vehicle and and move it around in a corner, but how good are your notes that are being called to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to dive into Pace Notes in in a lot more detail. Uh, Before we sort of move on, though, you you mentioned Daniel Ricciardo, and probably anyone listening to this podcast should be familiar with that name. Uh, One of my favorites in the F1 field, albeit at the moment, unfortunately, he seems to be struggling a, a little bit with McLaren but uh, we won't dwell on that. Obviously you're very close <laughs> to Circuit of the Americas and uh, you, you've mentioned that Daniel got to, to have a jam in a rally car uh, alongside you. So um, I'm interested, obviously he's at the top of his, his game, You know, he's in the top 10th of a percent of, of drivers in the world, albeit not on the surfaces that you compete on. Uh, what was it like taking someone like Daniel Ricardo and putting him in a rally car? How quickly did he he adopt to, to what was required of him?
0: Yeah, well, I think first thing I need to say is, uh, you know, he was here just before he won in Monaco back in, uh, I think that was 2018. So I think, you know, you can yourself decide if there's a correlation to when, you know, I worked with him and when he, uh, you know, he made that big W there in Monaco. But anyway, that's unrelated. Yeah, I, what was really cool about working with Daniel is he, you know, we were just talking about where people can improve. I think the biggest place people can improve to answer that question more succinctly is in their head. It's the head game that tends to be the biggest one. People always have already decided what they do or don't know. And so it was really fascinating seeing guys who you know, will get emails of people being like, well, I've done 17 track days. Do I really need to start with your basic program? Or can I jump right into your super pro advanced program? And I'm like, if you've done 17 track days, we have to start you so much further back because there's so much work to do especially when people start that way and daniel was the exact opposite of that daniel came in with some mutual friends they were like hey we're gonna be cruising through uh after the nascar race is it cool if we stop by with daniel and we're like yeah sure whatever and showed up and we're like oh, okay that daniel got it and um <laughs> and he was just like first off he's terrified of dogs which is important for everybody to know he was like nah it's like no I, I don't i don't do dogs nah uh-uh. but he um he hopped right in the car and uh, and was like, here, I'll ride shotgun, you drive. And so we were in a an in a EP3 Honda Civic, right? Like a 2002 Civic hatchback. It looks like a, a three-quarter scale minivan. And it's bone stock front wheel drive. I think we had blown rear shocks. So it was like, you know, bouncing everywhere. It was like, this was the most informal, unplanned, non-media centric, thing that popped up and he was just like laughing and he was like he's like this is your house you just do this every day and i was like yeah pretty much he's like fuck, that's so sick and <laughs> uh and then we we switch and he hops in the driver's seat and he's like yeah so what do i do and we're like well i mean you know you like you get paid a lot of money to do this so i can't be and he's like nah mate i don't think you understand i've never driven a car with a roof on it i don't know what the fuck i'm doing and we're like okay <laughs> sick and he genuinely was like, he was curious. He asked lots of questions and he was awful for a half a lap. And, and mind you, this is, you know, is about a 42nd lap just right here in the front of the school. And he just awful, you know, understandably there's some adapting to do between a, a winning Red Bull F1 car. And uh, what is some guy that worked at the airport's Honda Civic I bought on Craigslist, but you know, we've worked with a ton of really talented drivers in, in every discipline and and level up to that point. And so I have a pretty good idea of like what people's development curves look like, but watching Daniel get in and for a half a lap was just like, he would turn the wheel and the car would just understeer violently. And he had no idea how to fix it and save it. And then he finished a lap and we were just burning hot laps. And second lap, he like, was like okay cool he figured out how to you know refine that third lap was like cool got it that's that's pretty tidy he asked questions he listened he was curious he was receptive and then once it started to click it went into it was like this ai learning model of like once he understood the physics that was it and we got about five laps in and i was like i got nothing else to offer here and then (laughs) lap five six seven eight nine was its own its own space and it was really cool to go from teaching to learning really quickly. And it's not like Daniel became a rally driver in five laps. It's not that he was all of a sudden a better rally driver than you know anyone ever. It was just that he was developing so quickly with that car. It was like, oh, this is what it's like to work with somebody who has been refined from birth to do that. And it's, it was helpful for us to, to, like you said, I always tell my guys, Olympic coaches are not Olympic athletes, right? The big fat guy standing next to the Russian 10-year-olds on the balance beam cannot jump up there and do whatever crazy moves. And same thing goes here. I can't outdrive Daniel Ricciardo, but I can certainly offer some value for him when he's in the car. and. It really reinforced for us that space of saying, hey, when somebody comes along and they want to have an ego about how good and how cool they are and and they need, you know, they're probably already better than us. And so just remember that none of us are are claiming we're better than Daniel, but we can we can, you know, we were still able to coach and, and offer him that feedback. And that definitely evolved a lot for us.
1: Uh, it's really nothing that you wouldn't expect from someone operating at that level, and I'll just mention it for those who may be wondering about the the dog reference, because it might have sounded a little bit obscure uh, if you didn't know that uh, Rally Ready also run essentially a, a dog rescue as well. So anytime you go to the Rally Ranch, there's dozens of dogs running yeah, around, and,
0: and they're all three sleeping next to me,
1: and they're all super friendly. No one, no one's going to be in danger of, of losing an arm. So Daniel's uh, fear there was probably a little bit unfounded. All right, uh, let, let's move on and. For those again who who are a little bit fresh to to rally and, and don't really understand the the intricacies of how an event runs, I mean, obviously we understand we're we're driving on on loose surfaces, but uh, beyond that, let's talk about how an actual rally event goes. Obviously, you, you're you're racing against time, against the clock, not against directly. Uh, another car albeit there are cars released at time periods onto the same stage obviously to, to actually get through the event in a timely fashion uh, you've also got touring stages where you're driving between different competition or special stages you've got servicing give us the the sort of the the overall view of, of how that all works out
0: Yeah. So the entire rally is basically run on one to two minute intervals. So if we, instead of having a, you know, we're not at a a track in a closed motorsport facility. So we'll have what's called a service park. That would be a convention center, a school parking lot, something of that nature. Um, All the teams set up their big rigs and their tents. And then each of the cars leave in these one to two minute intervals. And the entire rally then operates on that interval. So first car out is at 12 o'clock. The next car, 1202 the next car, 1204, and then usually after those top three to five, they'll be in one-minute intervals, at least in the U.S. Um, But we'll just, for the sake of keeping it simple, we'll say it's one minute. So if you're the 15th car on the road, you're out at 1215, and it's uh, like you said, there's the the transit liaison. There's a lot of different names for the road sections, but all of the cars have to be road legal so that they can drive on public roads to get to the special stage or the competition portion. The special stage- Important to mention
1: here as well that those uh, transit stages, these are under public road rules yep. as well. So yep. not a competition stage, no speeding.
0: Yeah. So wow. you are- And
1: this you're running late.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are on a public road with public road traffic. So if you've ever seen even in WRC footage, sometimes you'll just see you know a car driving down a public road with a wheel dangling on the side and the co-driver leaning out the window and people staring in awe. That's a public road. That's that's you know you're traversing through traffic. Um, so you'll have an, a allotted amount of time to make it to the competition stage. The special stages are uh, shut down from point A to point B, anywhere from you know, 5K to, you know, 40 or 50K on some of the crazy long ones. And that is a public road that's shut down for the for the sake of the event. So you have no guardrails, you have no, you know, crash barriers. It's just a public generally gravel or, or occasionally tarmac road. Um, and then one minute intervals, same thing. Each of those cars goes out. So you'll sometimes have a rally where you're back in service and there's cars that are still a stage or even two stages back in the competition stages. And then as you're leaving your 45 minute service, they're just coming in. Um, which leads to the next part. We don't have pit stops. We don't have these, you know, crazy high stress, quick tire changes. We have what's called a service. So at the end of a, what they call a loop of stages, you'll usually do two or three or five of the, the competitive stages. You come back to the service park. You have thirty or forty five minutes to fix whatever you can on the car, and then head back out for another loop. So most events are two to three days in in length total. You'll usually cover a hundred to two hundred miles, or you know, two hundred. Uh, plus K of, of competitive stages. And then usually double that or more for those liaison or transit stages. So you might drive, you know, 500 K of, of transit stages and 150 or 200 K of, of competitive stages. Um, so yeah, managing your fuel and the car, uh, on, and the tires on those road sections is really key.
1: Okay. You, you talked about service and I think you mentioned maybe 30 or 45 minutes for a service and, and clearly if, if you keep bring the car in and, and it's in good shape, well happy days, the, the crew probably don't really have a, a lot of stress but when it comes in with the co-driver sitting on, on the hood and the, the left rear corner hanging off the car, uh, they've got a bit of work ahead of them. What What's the implications of, of running outside of that allotted time frame? Is that an instant disqualification or are we getting time penalties? How's it all work?
0: Yeah, so you if you're late coming into and uh, like finishing a stage, they have a maximum allowed lateness. So you can you can be late within a certain time and just take penalties for every minute that you're late. Same thing, leaving service. You can stay over in that allotted. Let's call it a sixty minute service. If it takes you an hour and a half, that's thirty minutes of of extra time. Um, depending on the event, the rules, you may be you know either disqualified or just heavily penalized. So you know sometimes there's there's that trade off of. Do we fix everything and go over and get the penalty or do we uh, duct tape all the bodywork back on and just focus on obviously getting the damper and the brakes functioning? So yeah, it's definitely a delicate balance, especially when you're a team with multiple cars. That can be really challenging is focusing, you know, understanding where to focus your manpower um, to get your cars back on stage.
1: On a slightly different angle of that, I I assume as a, a crew in the car, you're also going through that same sort of balancing act or weighing up uh, if you get a puncture through the stage and, and you've got to figure out well hey we're three kilometers from the end of the stage versus we're 15 kilometers from the end of the stage is it worth stopping and, and taking the couple of minute hit of changing the the tire there on the stage or do you limp it out obviously at a, a sub competitive pace and, and then change it once once you're out of the stage is that is that sort of how that works out?
0: Yeah, you're at best case scenario, you're 60 to 90 seconds to change a a tire. And that's like if you're superheroes. So generally, especially, you know, like what what we'll do on a stage is I'll call out the puncture. Once I determine where it is, I'll say, you know, left rear puncture and the co-driver will usually immediately respond 6K to the finish. Honestly, you have to be you'd have to be like, you know, 10K from the finish to consider changing it or it needs to be a front. If it's a front, you kind of don't have a choice you know, if, if you've got more than two miles, it's the collateral damage, uh, and just the natural wear. But again, it's, it's, you know, like anything in rally, it's about adapting. You have to immediately adapt your driving style and say, okay, got it. I've got a right rear puncture so I can push hard on my right corners and I got to crawl through my left. Um, Mm. but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really difficult balance to make. And you see a lot of times drivers get it wrong. The only good news I'll say there is tires are dramatically, Dramatically better than what they were even 10 years ago. So, our ability to push through on a puncture is a lot better.
1: All right. We've mentioned at this stage a co driver a couple of times, and this is another very big difference between rally and road racing. So, can you give us a a kind of a, a rundown on what the roles of the co driver are and why they exist?
0: Yeah. So co-driver is, like you said, one of those uh, one of those terms, those almost buzzwords in motorsport that if you're thinking of Daytona or sports car racing, a co-driver is another driver who comes in and you get out and they drive the car. In rallying, a co-driver, uh, think of them as a navigator is, is another term for them. So they're sitting on the other side of the car uh, and they're reading the pace notes to us. So the pace notes are a Collection of words, phrases uh, that are intended to specifically just paint a picture of of what it is that we're uh, that we're driving into, and those words can be anything that works for the driver. So, you know, I think this is an important lesson in life in general. Is like, as a co-driver, you don't have to agree; you just need to know that that's what your driver needs to hear. You know, it's adaptive communication, right? So, we work together, drivers and co-drivers, to pick and choose words and phrases that can describe you know, a set of terrain. And sometimes, you know, they're kind of obscure or you're you're making up your own contractions, you're making up your own, you know, words and sounds. But as long as it triggers the intended result for the driver, then it's functional. So the basic things we want to know are what's the degree of bend in the corner. Most traditional uh, format would be, uh, this would be like a, a hairpin or a one, two, three, four, five, six. So one would be your, you know, really tight corners. A three is is kind of a 90-degree corner. And then six is, a, you know, a, an almost flat corner. And that's – a lot of people will do that opposite. Some people will do up to, well, seven, ten, you know, or more for the numbers. Then you'll have a number that's usually meters of straight between instructions. And then you have a bunch of hazards and, and other calls. So you'll have, you know, don't cut, meaning there's something on the inside of the corner you don't want to hit. Caution means there's some kind of hazard, and then you've got crests and and unseen brows. So it ends up being this really fluid language that once you understand what you're listening to, it completely changes the context of of like watching rally onboards.
1: Now, obviously, at the upper levels of the sport, WRC, for example, and anyone who's who's watched and carved of WRC will, will have heard those those pace notes that you're just talking about and. Clearly, you've got, again, just like Daniel Ricardo, just in a different uh, discipline, professional drivers, this is what they get paid to do and they damn well better be good at understanding and interpreting those pace notes as they go. Let's bring that back a little though to those who, who are just getting started. And I can only imagine that if you're relatively fresh to rallying, you're going to be relatively task saturated just controlling the damn car and keeping it on the island. A- at that point... You know, do we dull down the the level of information in the pace notes because too much information can actually be a, a hindrance rather than a help?
0: Yeah, in the U.S., we ran a system called JEMBA for a long time, and that was run by a guy named Pete Lam. And it's it's a I think they're out of Sweden, but it's basically think of it as a black box that rides in a car. Pete goes and drives all the rally stages, and it magically makes what are called stage notes. Stage notes are. Pace notes that are just uniform for all competitors. So historically in in the US over the past few decades, that was the most common thing you'd get at a national rally. You'd pay an extra 200 bucks. Somebody would just hand you those notes and then you would maybe get one pass of recce or reconnaissance to to tailor those notes. Finally, people realized like, hey, we're all willing to invest the extra day off of work to come write our own pace notes because US rallying is just so far behind the rest of the world because we didn't write our own notes. We were being spoon fed these, these Gemba notes. But that basic system still worked really well. And even those notes, like you said, you'd still get a new driver and they'd be like, what the hell? And you would just cut half the stuff out because it just, it wasn't, it wasn't important. But, you know, I think it's not only the driver experience that dictates how much you can have, but it's also the speed of the car. You simultaneously, if you're in a, you know, a BMW 2002, you're in a, you know, 70s BMW that's got a 90 horsepower and your top speed is 85 miles an hour if you've got 3 caves straight. You don't need the same information as you do if you're Ken Block in the Hyundai WRC car. So understanding how much information you need as a driver and also how much time do you have. When we started really picking up pace in my car, that's when we realized, well, I need more information, but I have less time to convey it. So that's where it gets really important to be uh, maximum information, minimum syllables.
1: Sure, Uh, I can only imagine that that relationship between the driver and the co-driver is is really critical to the effectiveness of the overall package and obviously there's inherent Massive level of trust that goes into the driver and co-driver as well. You, you've got to trust that the the call that the co-driver is giving you is correct and at the correct time. Because if you're committing to a, a seven left, which is essentially flat, and, and it turns out to be a, a, a three left, that, that's a very different corner, and it's probably not going to end well. Correct.
0: Yeah, and also the the other it goes the other way. A co-driver has to trust that they can get in a car with a driver who's going to listen and who's going to. Drive to the notes. And I mean, it's a marriage. It's just like any other relationship. You know, we actually do a lot of training at the school in in a corporate space around this high level, like, you know, C level training for teaching teams to communicate effectively using the principles of co driving. Because co driving, like marriage, like uh, familial relationships, like professional, every relationship, communication is life or death. Like everything that we do, I mean, as you and I know in a business, like, if you don't communicate or you communicate the wrong thing, then, you know, your team or your company is off doing all the wrong stuff. So it is really fascinating to, to find that for me, at least it's really important. I really need to like the person I'm in the car with, you know, trust often develops around the kind of rapport that you get when you're with somebody that you enjoy being with. It's easy to talk to somebody that you are you're excited to be in the car with them some people don't really care they're just like yeah that's just this person's really good at what they do and they're here to help me do the thing but i think for me like rallying is supposed to be fun uh we're not gonna make billions of dollars doing this we're exclusively gonna go have a really exceptionally fun week or weekend so i want to when i'm in the car with somebody for 14 hours a day i want to be able to talk shit and enjoy myself with them um, yeah absolutely so that part's key but then yeah i mean like same thing as in dating or anything else. You really have to find the right mesh. Um, you know, you got to find the the Andre to your Ben or the Ben to your Andre.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, it, it is a, a human sport at the end of the day. I'm just interested with with the way the the pace notes get called. And you know, as your car goes faster, which you've kind of mentioned there, you need these pace notes to be delivered a little bit earlier. You also mentioned you need a little bit more detail. But in terms of just where the notes are called relative to a to a section of of the stage that's coming up. If you feel that the, the the notes are lagging behind where you need them, is there a cue you can give to the co-driver to deliver those notes earlier, or does a professional co-driver who's good at what they're doing innately sense that and is able to uh, vary their cadence and cadence as they need to to give you what you need?
0: A little bit of both. I mean, I think you know. Your co driver's looking down and they're largely calling the notes based on feel. So they're feeling each of the things that they call. And so they know where they are at the stage with the occasional glance to double check. If they've got a a 300 meter straight, then they'll have time to look up and and check in. My co driver, I had a new co driver at the last event, incredibly, incredibly talented co-driver has been in the car with a lot of really fast drivers um and still on our first stage he was like oh the pace was quicker than i expected and so he got behind on one corner i didn't have to say anything he he saw as he came in the corner that that was the note he was on and you could feel him kind of get the next two corners out really quickly so that we were back on pace
1: just to catch up
0: and yeah but if if i'm with a co-driver and i need something i'll just say next or if they're way ahead of me i'll say repeat so there's some really simple language. You can also, you know, verbally chastise and berate them, but uh, we just generally don't have time for that in the car.
1: No, they can save that for the the transit stages. Exactly. Now, another element, another tool for the the co driver is the rally computer or or trip computer. Um, what is that, and and how's that function?
0: So we now have uh, redundant options for that. We'll have the the main co-driver computer which is a, just a really fancy glorified gps odometer so that gives us down to the hundredth of a, a mile or k uh, and that lets the co-driver know where they are on a stage so if god forbid a co-driver gets lost in the notes they can check their auto to see where they are and cross-reference that to their their pace notes uh, it also helps them cross-reference if there's any hazards any turns anything that that's in the description of the route that they need to know is coming up that'll help them. It also helps in the event of an emergency. Uh, if you encounter another car having an emergency, you need to know exactly where you are on the stage so that you can relay that to, to get help. Um, or if you are stopped on stage and you want to be able to relay that, that's also super key. We do, however, as I said, there's redundant systems. We now have the co-driver computer, but the co-driver also has Rally Safe now, which is a GPS tracker that's provided by the organizers. And that's been huge for the sport because well, you know, you've been to Pikes Peak. And and one of my biggest complaints from the decade I raced up there was that they still had no real way to track cars on the mountain. Still was like you would just send, uh, you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment up on a 12 mile road and somehow people would get lost along the way and they would just know, well, he came past this checkpoint, but then we didn't see him at this one. So he's somewhere in here and rally safe is a gps tracker that essentially if the vehicle once the vehicle starts a stage it's a green dot if you stop on stage then you have to hit okay in a certain amount of time if you don't hit that button in a very narrow window then they will throw the stage and they'll send an ambulance and medical in to check on you and that's been huge for us because you know that's historically one of the most challenging things about rally is you're you know it's like the baja 1000 or any of these other you know dakar any of these endurance events you're not on a three mile track with 25 corners and 50 marshals who can immediately render aid. So you have to carry your own medical stuff. You have to have, I mean, everybody's got to be trained on how to handle an emergency. So the rally safe and, and odometer definitely play a key part in that.
1: Um, I'm interested just to, to, Dig into that a little bit. It's maybe slightly off off track, but just for my own personal interest, you, you know, you come across a, a car that's maybe had a multiple rollover, and there's no visible sign of, of life from from memory. Uh, if you do have an incident and you're okay, there's a little triangle that you put out, sort of as a warning, and you know you can f- indicate to following cars that you are okay. But if that's not the case, you come across that and you're first on the scene, and like you say, unlike a, a closed circuit race, you, you don't have martial points throughout the stage necessarily so you might be the only person that can render immediate assistance. You're also for your own point racing against the clock and trying to get the lowest time through that stage you can. What, what happens there? What's the decision? You, you obviously want to stop and, and render assistance. What happens to your stage time? How do the officials deal with those scenarios?
0: Yeah, there's a few scenarios. If if you stop to render aid and it turns out that everybody's fine, and then you proceed on, um, you can file an inquiry and basically ask for that time back because though those competitors didn't do their job or or hadn't had time. So say like you said, somebody rolls off the stage and it took them. If you're in a one minute interval, it took them all that time to get back up and they just hadn't made it. And you came right as they're hiking up over and they're holding their their okay sign as it is. Um, you can file an inquiry and they'll give you back that time and you can use your onboard to determine. Uh, But if there's an actual Red Cross scenario where there's an injury or there's a car blocking a stage, there's a fire, whatever it is, you stop uh, and then the stage is shut down. Once you've stopped and you've determined that, then you wait for the next car and the next car behind you, you flag them down and you'd send them on to a radio relay point. And again, that's where that odometer comes in. You need to know where that next radio point is. And then those people would radio in. But again, that's one of the things that's so tricky is you're you're in the middle of nowhere. So a rally still to this day generally runs on ham radio. It's just running on an amateur radio network. So you've got a bunch of nerds with radios in their trucks in the woods, you know, keeping the entire event running. It's It's pretty wild.
1: Yeah, bit of bit of the wild west, but I mean, naturally, you're going through some pretty untamed uh, countryside from time to time as well. So there's an element of that, sort of understandable to a point. Right, let's dive into some of the finer elements of, of actually driving driving a rally car, and you know what what I guess as your you consider are the key skills that that are critical to rallying versus road racing. You've yeah, already mentioned vision, and, and that kind of goes for both. But let, let's just dive into what you, your your sort of thoughts are here.
0: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing with rally is adaptability. I mean, you're, you're just changing. And it's not just changing to circumstances, but as I sort of alluded to earlier, like, well, let's take a 20K rally stage, for example. In a 20K rally stage, the width of the road is going to change six times, dramatically. You're going to have... Uh, big wide flowing, you know, uh, gravel road that's being maintained by one county. And then you're going to turn a 90 degree right off of that onto a tiny little single track road you can barely see um, that looks more like a, you know, a a dirt bike trail than a road. You're going to do that for 2k. And then you're going to turn onto this completely different road. And then that one's going to have gotten rain. So it's not just adapting to those conditions, but you're also even if you've got a perfect pace notes which don't exist, and you've driven the perfect line which doesn't exist, you're moving the car around mid corner always. You're, you're constantly searching for grip, and you're you're adjusting your input. So, you know, in a sports car, and you know, circuit racing, you're you're on the brakes, you're trail brake into a corner, and then you're transitioning back to throttle, and you're unwinding the wheel, and you're trying to sort of duplicate that each corner. In a rally car, you're trail breaking in, you're upsetting the back end of the car. And you're using left foot braking for all of this. And I think that's the first place that people kind of go, huh? When they come here and and don't really know what to expect. We're like, yeah, we're, our sole focus is on getting you comfortable driving a car with your left foot sitting over the brake pedal all the time. So you know, without this turning into a, a, skills clinic, you know, there's a million reasons for left foot braking. You know, if you've got a sick single turbo Supra and you want to brake boost it on the highway to race your buddies, then you left foot brake to, you know, to build boost. Like there's, you know, in, in NASCAR or Indy 500 this, uh, past week, you know, you're left foot braking to draft or whatever it is. Right. But the biggest thing to think about is, you know, mechanically, We know that when we press a mechanical throttle, especially, we're pulling a cable that's opening a valve that's sending a signal to the ECU that has to spray fuel, has to combust, has to go through the gearbox, through the axles and to the wheels. There's a lot of time when you press a gas pedal to do something versus hydraulic actuation of brakes is instant. So we'll use brakes with throttle on to get the car to upset and rotate and do what we want because coming off the brakes, then you instantly you still have you know, the turbo spooled, you're already in power, you have all the slack out of the drivetrain. So you're able to make these remarkable changes mid-corner with the attitude and angle of the car with left foot braking.
1: Just, just before you go on with that, so that, that left foot braking there, are we, are we talking about, obviously with the brake bias, when you touch the brakes, predominantly you're putting more braking effort towards the front than the rear. Are you using that left foot braking as a, a case of, adjusting where the, the power is being delivered, if, if a four wheel drive for example, if you left foot brake, uh, more braking is going to the front so you, you potentially have a situation where more drive can go to the rear or is this a weight transfer so you're actually using a left foot braking to transfer weight onto the front of the vehicle hence off the rear and, and making the rear of the car slide that way or is it a combination?
0: I mean it's a combination but largely... You know, it's kind of like we said earlier, like there's a lot of setup and a lot of craft for sure in building and setting up a rally car. Absolutely. I don't want to discount that, but, but, you know, you're, as we talked about, you, you're, you're always working with whatever you've got in a rally car. So the biggest thing is just weight, right? It's, it's much more about getting the weight where you need it. I mean, it's to say you're always in a route in any car, any, any race car at all. You're always putting weight where you need it. That's, that's, you know, that's the biggest battle. In a rally car, especially though, because you have such low grip, it's it's super crucial that you get the weight where you need it and when you need it. And then again, you're moving that weight around mid corner because where that weight is positioned has such a dramatic effect on you know your cornering angle and and then your obviously entry and exit speeds. The legend John Buffham, who's the sort of winningest uh, rally driver in North American history, who there's a whole book about him that's called In Like a Lamb, Out Like a Lion, and that's his. That's sort of his phrase for for new drivers. And I think that's something that's super important to recognize as a new driver is like you're cautious into the corner. So easy in, you get the car set up, you get it rotated, and once you know that you're where you need to be, you get the the hammer down early and, and you power out and out like a lion. So you know, as you get to the level of where, you know, Ken and Travis were fighting this past weekend in Oregon, like that's in like a lion out, like a lion, right? It's just, you're, <laughs> you're on the ragged edge everywhere. And those guys are hilarious after stages. Cause you know, they're like, you know, they're like, man, we were coming up to that one. And I saw, I saw Ken's break marks and I was like, Nope, not that brave today. And, you know, breaking four meters earlier. Cause there's no way I don't have that card for that, you know, and that's a different level obviously, but yeah, I mean the left foot braking is is the biggest piece and then and again like I said it's like you're you know what the the road's going to do based on uh four left titans into three left plus 70 you know roughly what that looks like but the road looks different than it did two days earlier when you were doing your reconnaissance and you wrote your notes a bunch of cars have driven it some since then so you may have more or less grip than you anticipate more importantly travis probably swept a giant rock out that's you know that big into your racing line and so now you have to decide do i hit it do i split it or do i go all the way around it
1: so this is all about the skill set of being able to adapt your line once you've actually turned and you're committed and you come around the apex and see something that you weren't expecting, or maybe, the, as you say, the the corner's a little bit tighter than you anticipated.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I think that's super important to note is like think about... You know, a a good track day. You roll up to the track with your car. You take your floor mats and your stuff out. You put it in a bin and you go drive a bunch of laps. And at the end of the day, you know, you're like, "Cool, man! I wore my brakes down and my tires down." And your car looks like a car, and it's a little dirty. And you bring it home and wash it. Rally cars just don't ever finish an event without looking like they've, you know, dropped up the the ring into the fires of Mordor. Like they just look destroyed by the end of the event because they're taking so much abuse. So you know, you're you're also having to consider. Not only that, mechanically, the car on stage seven is a very different car than you started stage one with. Um, And also remembering, I mean, really genuinely, you have to be thinking about the active life cycle of a tire while you're driving because a rally tire has a square edge on the side of the tread. As that, it's not the tread depth that matters, it's that square edge. So as soon as you radius the edge of that, you lose your initial bite, you lose that turn in. And so knowing how much tire you have is. Is that? I mean, that's how you can only push the car into a corner as much tire as you have.
1: On that note, I mean, particularly the likes of of F one, there's so much about we hear about tire management through through the event and you know the drivers are, are purposely underdriving the car so as to manage that tyre life. So it's not all about driving at 10 tenths and just getting the absolute maximum because yes, you might be able to do that for one or two laps, but then your, your tyre performance just drops off a cliff. Do you essentially have exactly the same in rally where you know you've got to get through three 15 kilometre competitive stages before you can get back to service and bolt on new new tyres? Is it a case of maybe... Managing expectations and your your pace to ensure that you've still got tire left in that third stage before service?
0: Yeah, and also considering you know when you're when you're really fighting and you're in a in a really tight battle, do you carry one spare or two? If you carry one spare tire in the car, then you've got one chance to make a mistake. If you carry two, you can push not only that much harder, but you also have the option that if everything goes well on a loop of stages and you're in a battle, okay, you're coming into the third the third stage of that loop, then you can stop and you can put two new tires on the front of the car and put your two used tires into spares and then you can have an absolute flyer on that. Or you can put two soft tires in uh, in the back because the last stage, you know, is different weather, different conditions, whatever. You know, and same thing, you might have two really smooth stages and then a really rough stage or you might have a smooth, a rough and a smooth stage. So. Understanding where you can push. um, I mean, that's huge. It's a huge, huge. There there are events where the stages are so rough in certain spots that if you push for two miles of a certain stage, you can obliterate your tires. Whereas you back off for those two, those two miles, you might lose, you know, 10 seconds, but you're going to gain that back over the next stage because you're going to have so much tire left.
1: Yeah, I I remember back many years ago I was involved in crewing and tuning a Subaru WRX STI that was running in the New Zealand Rally Championship and that was back when we had uh, Rally New Zealand which fortunately this year is coming back, pretty excited. Uh, There's a a specific stage which I think is called Fonga Coast. And uh, pretty well known stage in Rally New Zealand, and I remember watching cars come back into service after that Fongai Coast stage, and literally these rally tyres were slick, just no Get tread bald. left on them, just absolute. You know, the the it must be the the surface composition or, or whatever, but I, I just could not believe it if I hadn't seen it with my own own eyes. Just how much a tyre can degrade over a rally.
0: Yeah. And it's, what's funny about that though, is again, like people think of that as like, oh yeah, cool. They ran the tire out and you're like, no, that tire stopped performing like 10 K into the first stage. Like that, that edge was gone and you, you know, they would have worn that. So instead of the square edge, they just had this like, this just like soft ramp, and so the car had no bite on turn in, and then they just you know mercilessly beat it. Now, one of the things that you'll see is if you run a mixed surface loop, so sometimes they'll run two gravel stages and a tarmac stage, or vice versa. Then you have the challenge of unless they have a remote tire change, which is very rare, then you have the challenge of like okay, I've got to manage you know, tires through this tarmac stage, or if it's the end of a loop, then it's ideal. You just absolutely smoke them and you put on a big drifty smoke shell. Yeah, and then you bring back up a, a carcass with no tread left. That's what I always call value mode when you get to that <laughs> stage of the
1: tire. got to get your money's worth out of those yeah. tires. It, interesting you just just mentioned tarmac there. And and this is where, you know, you see the, the difference in style between rally and those who are brought up in a, a road race, sort of hill climb, mentality where particularly on on a closed circuit we we don't tend to slide the car, sliding the car generally is going to be slower Uh, but we watch a stage of a tarmac rally in WRC and they're just as sideways as as they are on gravel so where's the disconnect here? Why is this still the fastest way uh, uh, around a corner on tarmac and a rally car?
0: You know, it, it's it's challenging because it's definitely not. I mean, I think when Sebastian Loeb came into the sport in, in the early 2000s, he really revolutionized the way that everybody was looking at at rallying across the board. And a lot of that was because his approach even on tarmac was so much more, uh, you know, grip oriented. It was so much more tactical. I mean, as, as I was saying earlier, it's this you know rallying is this sort of abstract art form i think everybody was like uh uh you know hippie drum circle up until Loeb came along and then he came in with a you know a pen and a paper and a ruler and a calculator and he was like everybody's like oh shit we gotta get serious now because he was killing it like it just he his style if you look at what was happening with uh you know burns and mcgray and and granholm and all these guys even in the in the 90s um, it was still absolutely that that McRae style of driving and Loeb came along and it just got razor sharp. You'll still see, though, so much sideways action on Tarmac, one, because that's the fun stuff to show, but also because the when the corners get cut, they'll sweep massive amounts of gravel or you know, chunks of, of loose tarmac back on the stage. And so even on a fast, you know, a a five or six left, right, you'll still see sometimes this pile of gravel across the stage. So you're, you're, which is the most dangerous thing. It's like, we're saying about Pike's peak, you know, when Pike's peak got fully paved before they figured out how to prevent corner cutting, it was at its worst because you're on, you know, thousand plus horsepower cars on three, you know, three thirty five slicks driving on, gravel because the first three cars cut the corner and swept it across the road so you'll see that in tarmac rallies but you'll also you know when you come up to a hairpin the fastest way around a hairpin is almost always still going to be there they're so tight is going to be a you know a dab of the handbrake and then on the power um
1: just to get the car to rotate initially
0: yeah because i mean sometimes those hairpins are literally so tight that you almost can't physically make it around it without the hairpin but like I mean, if it's a tenth slower, are you going to not grab the handbrake? No, you're going to grab the handbrake yeah,
1: every time, surely. Just talking about that handbrake as well. Uh, and obviously, that's another tool that is unique to rally. We, we don't don't use the handbrake in uh, in circuit racing. I, I don't actually think our cars even got one. Uh, maybe it'll stop it rolling off the trailer if, if a strap uh, gets loose. But beyond that, you know, it, it's it's different. Our is it tempting as well for those who are maybe just getting up to speed with rally and don't have a lot of experience to, to over-utilize the handbrake? Is it something that's really only key for those very tight hip and corners like you've talked about?
0: No, the, the handbrake is like a cheater button It can get you out of a lot of trouble and it can it can help you in a variety of corners. Historically, I'm I'm not anti-handbrake, but I don't spend any time focused on it because it's one of those things that like it's really easy for people to be like oh we'll just grab the handbrake oh we'll just grab the handbrake. just grab the handbrake and it's like yeah when my when my center diff was wired backwards once a long time ago and it was basically like the handbrake was on all the time it was open and then you'd grab the handbrake and it would be like center diff party um that was a time when we were like oh hey like okay yeah no wonder the card doesn't work you know it's important in a variety of applications but I do think that like a lot of people believe that going to a rally school is just going to be like, we put you in a car and there's just a handbrake there and you just go like, just jam on that thing all day. But, you know, some places where it comes in handy is like, there's definitely moments where you come into even a faster corner, you get a little more understeer than you expect. A dab of handbrake can, can, can definitely move the rear of the car, you know, and get you out of a little bit of trouble.
1: So it's just understanding all of those tools that you have available in your toolbox to get the car to, to actually go through the corner and, and do what you want.
0: Yeah. I mean, like what I always tell people, you know, somebody in your scenario who, who does a lot of, you know, circuit racing and, and grip driving rallying is the, is the, is the the specialty toolbox drawer where if you sit in a shop and you watch your mechanic all day and he's, everything's going fine. He's using his wrenches and sockets and you know, ratchets and basic stuff. And he comes over covered in grease and blood dripping and, and cursing furiously he goes into that specialty tool drawer and pulls a bolt extractor or pulls whatever. Like those are your rally tools in circuit racing. These are all of the Oh shit tools to have there when you inevitably find the limit and you need to be up. Those need to be reactive muscle memory tools.
1: Yeah. Alright let's talk about cars and the differences between driving techniques uh, particularly here, I'm talking rear wheel drive, front wheel drive, four wheel drive. Obviously, in the earlier days of rallying, rear wheel drives kind of ruled supreme. These days, no big surprise if you want to be competitive at the point end of, of any rally field, uh, four wheel drive is going to be essential. But we are tending to see a lot more front wheel drives becoming popular uh, at club level, and, and I mean, even, even more competitive than that. And on face value you would sort of think well front wheel drive maybe a bit staid and boring it, it's great for going and getting the groceries from the supermarket but uh, for rallying nah give me a rear wheel drive I, is there any sort of reality to that or is there some real advantages with front wheel drive
0: Yeah I mean it like anything you know you mentioned earlier about our Gran Turismo fans you know it's like inevitably somebody's going to get pissed off at any answer here but the reality is like rear wheel drive that's what cars were you know the first front wheel drive rally car to to do anything was the mini and the thing killed, you know, out of the box, like it it crushed, um, in its time. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of front wheel drive cars in the world. Now what we, what we traditionally find with people, sort of the, the attitude or expectation coming in when it comes to two wheel drive stuff is like, I want to drive rear wheel drive. It's going to be so much cooler front wheel drives for nerds. I don't want anything to do with it. I love front wheel drive as a tool. It is a really powerful and profound tool for helping people understand what the limit of a car is in terms of its capability of getting sideways. I find them to be a really profound tool because people don't understand a front wheel drive car. Keep in mind, nothing's in the back of that car. There's just two dragging static wheels that do nothing. So everything's happening up front. So when you turn a car in and you add left foot brake and the back starts to slide, Front wheel drive cars get sideways immediately because there's again no weight back there. What's cool about them though is they can get like 90 degrees sideways. All you got to do is put the the front wheels where you want and if you add power, just pull straight again like magic. So getting people comfortable with huge slides and not relying on on mechanical assistance from all wheel drive, front wheel drive can't be beat. Rear wheel drive is absolutely when you get it right is an absolute blast. It's a it's it's a riot. Like it's the greatest thing ever, but It is such a high, and again, everybody, it's the same thing. It's like people hear it and they're like, Yeah, right, I'd be fine. I've been, you know, I used to drive in back roads all the time. I know how to do donuts in a rear wheel drive. And you get them in a car and they just are like spinning constantly here and get really frustrated. You put them in a front wheel drive car, they find those limits and those are really easy and soft, soft limits. And they enjoy themselves way more and they learn way more. Then you move them into all wheel drive. All wheel drive has the same corner entry characteristics as a front wheel drive car, right? Like it's it tends to be pretty pretty linear in the way it responds. And then you counter steer and again when you add power it, it sort of pulls out. But it balances that with the mid corner grip and some of that that you know sliding corner exit of rear wheel drive. And then the most difficult on the totem pole is definitely definitely rear wheel drive. But you know, with that said, like in the States for a long time two wheel drive met front wheel drive but enough people were like no Rear wheel drive is way cooler, and have been building a ton of really incredible rear wheel drive cars. My favorite by far is our buddy Derek Nelson, who has this ludicrous like twenty two hundred pound BRZ with Sedev diff and and you know gearbox in it and long travel everything, and it makes monster power. And he absolutely smoked me on multiple occasions at this past rally in my four wheel drive car. You know on those high speed sections where you know horsepower in fifth sixth gear wins like dude he was killing it and uh so that's been really cool because you know my i started in front wheel drive i love it but like anybody once you've linked like i was saying about gran turismo once you've like connected a series of corners together in a rear wheel drive car and you know you you'll feel like a 70s Finnish rally superhero <laughs> and it is impossible to go back
1: no, no doubt the yeah the feeling must be very satisfying getting it right. Essentially, though the the skills translate. So what you learn in a front wheel drive still applicable to four wheel drive. Obviously, with a rear wheel drive, a little more finesse maybe on throttle control uh, if you don't want to just be doing donuts on a corner exit.
0: Yeah, it. it... It's throttle control. It's knife edge. Like a, a front wheel drive has this really soft limit. So there's like this soft radius of like, you know, what can you get away with before you've slid so far that you can't bring it back? All wheel drive is, is is really similar. Um, you know, you can certainly spin both of those. But rear wheel drive is because you, you don't have, I mean, you can put your wheels where you want to go. But if the back of the car is past a certain point, feeding throttle is not pulling that front straight. Feeding throttle is pushing the back around. So you got to know it's just such a different type of, of uh, weight management in that dynamic. So you can sort of corner entry similarly in all three. Again, you you just always have to be really mindful of your slide in a rear wheel drive because the more you get that back end around, the harder it is to bring it back the other way.
1: Yep. Fair enough. All right, let's talk a little bit about car setup. And um, one, one of the key elements, and I've sort of seen this through my own limited experience uh, helping out with national level rallying here in New Zealand. You know, the, the dampers are so so key to the performance and the reliability of a rally car. and, and I mean I, I still love watching clips of WRC where they go over a massive jump and you see that long travel suspension and it, it's at full droop and, and it looks like it's got you know 12 inches of, of, uh, of, of travel left. But the, the key point is when you watch that car land and all it does is the suspension just soaks up that that, that landing. And it comes back to its normal ride height. There's no bouncing. There's no no sort of oscillating, and it's just good to go again. And I mean, I look at that and having at least a, a, a brief understanding of, of what's going on inside of those dampers, I kind of I, I got to feel there's some, some magic going on in there. It just sort of seems to defy physics. So, you know, what what is the difference we see between you know you're, you're off the shelf? Uh, $1,200 set of BC Racing coilovers that we might plug into our street car or a club level circuit car versus, you know, at the top end, um, maybe $40,000 or, or more for a set of Rigers developed specifically for Rally?
0: You know, I, I, there's like the the really granular stuff that I can't speak to, you know, your digressive this and your, you know, shim stacks and rate plates and piston design and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in there that that is above my pay grade i think the the biggest thing though above all of that is is like you said if you think about your dampers on a rally car uh look at a trophy truck right Uh, the trophy trucks now Somebody posted a video the other day of, you know, Robbie Gordon's truck in the 90s and like the suspension is going like this and the truck's, you know, kind of bouncing a little bit. And now these trucks are just like this, you know, it's just the truck is dead level and the suspension is is genuinely is taking all of the impact
1: out of that experience for the driver. While I'm really enjoying your uh, hand signals here, this is uh, audio podcast, so that's right, not right. translating so Fair. well. But essentially what yeah, you're yeah. saying is, in the older days, the, te- the technology, the-, the cars were bouncing you know, physically, the, the-, the platform was, was yeah. moving around and yeah, I mean anyone can probably search out Trophy Truck on Instagram and, and see exactly what you're talking about. They're just eating up, uh, Whoop Eaters is one of my favourite accounts for exactly, exactly. that. And, and-, and the-, the-, the actual truck body itself just doesn't move and, and the suspension is doing all the work. Again, it's kind of like there's some magic going on there that I don't understand.
0: It is. And it's, you know, Plaster City is a cool one. If you search for Plaster City testing, you'll get a lot of videos. There's a highway next to the track there in Plaster City and you'll get a profile shot of a truck. And yeah, exactly. The body, it looks like somebody can be, uh, you know – of making a cup of tea in the, in the, you know, passenger seat while the suspension is, is a, you know, meter plus of travel up and down with these 40 inch tires. And, and so, you know, think about that. And then think about that in the context of like, that's a, that's a, you know, million dollar truck that's designed to go do what it does. All rally cars are built off of a factory unibody. So a rally car is not a one off, you know, tube chassis um, that's purpose built. It is still a, factory unibody even all the way up to wrc these are modified factory or modified road cars so no matter what i don't care what any you know, super Mitsubishi fanboy says there's no road car that was ever designed to do the things that a rally car is asked to do. So, when you're looking at production rallying like what we're doing, or you know, Group N or even, even Group A in the 90s, these were really close to road cars that had to be modified to sustain that abuse. So, the suspension is the first place that you can prevent all of that energy from being smashed into the car. So, Like for us, you know, we, we spent three times more on our dampers than, than, you know, this past year than we had previously to get the new best, biggest Rigers and they paid for themselves in a single event because we had a, an upright fail and, you know, the wheel bearing failed and the whole corner of the car fell apart on me and the wheel turned sideways and we did 10 miles with the wheel at, you know, 90 degrees sideways, you know, like, and the damper was the only thing holding all that together and it was fine. there was no damage, wasn't bent, nothing. Like we we put a new knuckle on, we replaced a brake caliper and a brake line, and everything was good. So, you know, there's there's the strength component, the damper in a you know in a McPherson strut, especially in like a Subaru or a Mitsubishi, it's an integrated part of the strength of your entire the corner of the car. And then there's the valving, there's the travel, you know, and there's the fluid displacement. We're we're running such massive dampers on these cars now you know again to the to the trophy truck likeness the trophy truck shocks are running at you know 400 degrees fahrenheit on those trucks and they don't really work until they get up to temperature that's you know the same temperature that you would roast a chicken at so the 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 energy going into the suspension is so huge that the size and capacity for the fluid and then all the like you said all the voodoo and, and black magic that's happening inside of there that i don't understand it really is remarkable, but that's just mechanically. If we then translate that into driver feel, the confidence that you have when you're under braking and you don't have this massive nosedive because you have the you know the the cheaper shocks and you don't have to worry about that big nasty hit that you're going to take in that G out. You just don't even feel that stuff with the, the big stuff these days.
1: Yeah, okay, fair enough. So w- what I'm re- reading into that is you know if you you're picking places to put your budget when building a rally car the damper is really one of those key elements and and I guess in in that sort of aspect you know if we're if we're balancing engine power versus dampers is it still the damper that wins every time
0: yeah horsepower is is pretty low on the list uh for for rally cars you know you really have to get your car to where you're just exhausted on every other category before power becomes a huge issue. Um, You know, again, think about it. You're on a loose surface. You've got such limited grip with this skinny little tires. And, you know, they're always going to be sliding um, no matter what, even with a naturally aspirated Subaru like we used to race. even with a big wide tire, you're still sliding. So, yeah, I think, you know, your your dampers are, you know, your suspension is, is kind of highest on the list. And then, you know, brakes are right there with that. Um, obviously, both of those taking a backseat to safety because you can't, Push hard into a corner until you know that you're going to survive, um, and then yeah, you know, power and drivability are are kind of towards the end of that list in rally, which is is a little bit different than what you would find in in uh, other disciplines.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, normally we sort of chase power as being the holy grail of improving lap times. Uh, you know There's so many elements I see with with. Rally and and for me at least, I sort of see you know the difference of of ten or fifteen horsepower, which we might be able to get once we've got a developed engine. Uh, the the driver will probably make up that deficit tenfold. Uh, it's just not quite so critical. Plus, we add on top of that, uh, of course. We're we're dealing with a restrictor as well, which ultimately, within reason, does kind of get a somewhat level playing field with how much power you can actually physically make, no matter how much money you want to throw at the engine. Now, of course, there's there's levels to that as well, and we can move the the power curve around, but ultimately, you can still only get so much air through a thirty-four know, millimeter restrictor or whatever size it is that you're currently currently running. For for those listening. And I'm asking this for, for some selfish reasons here, but hopefully it helps some others as well. Uh, we've recently been having conversations around the workshop of what we can do to get involved in some, some grassroots level grass canas, gravel hill climbs, and maybe, maybe in the future, some stage rally. And uh, myself and Ben, my business partner, uh, have no or very limited experience on, on gravel. I'm expecting we're probably going to roll whatever we buy up into a ball pretty quickly on so I don't want to be spending a huge amount of money on something we'll consider disposable and I want something that potentially we can build on so low entry cost safety as you mentioned is going to be critical so whatever we get obviously roll cage and safety equipment goes without saying but you know what what's your sort of take on a good entry level gravel car
0: I think the most important thing for anybody to consider anytime they're looking at getting involved in motorsports is if you can't afford two, you can't afford one. That's just like use that as a rule for everything you do forever. If you have to save up to buy whatever, you know, badass gearbox, whatever, then you can't afford it. If you can't go out, you know, I'm not saying that if you know we just put an X shift sequential in my car, it's not like we just bought two because we're like, yeah, whatever. But it, just think about that in the mental space of – don't go get the biggest, biggest, baddest, fastest thing you possibly can. You know, you and I met a decade ago when I had my Pikes Peak Hill Climb Evo. And that car was, was awful for me because I could barely afford to run it, no less to fix or replace anything if I crashed it. So that was a, you know, that was a, a hugely important lesson for me to learn. And, and, and I basically took a decade off from competing in anything until we could get to where we are now, where we can comfortably afford to like, you know, if we were to go to an event and, um, crash this car, I, I wouldn't, you know, it would not bankrupt me as a, as a human, um, emotionally slightly maybe, but so, you know, it's going to depend so much on where you are in the world and what's available. There's a common misconception that the car you have is a good car to go race with. And I always tell people like, it, what's your CLV, right? What's your Craigslist value or, you know, uh, whatever the, the appropriate regional, um, used car resale, uh, that's all Facebook marketplace now, I think, but, what's your car worth on facebook marketplace that's how much money you have because chances are the car that you inherited when your grandma died is not going to make a good rally car or you know track day car so you know the reality whether you love subarus or not is subaru since 93 you know or even earlier if you want to get into the the old group a legacy has been producing road cars that have a staggering availability of bolt-on rally parts so the gc and gd Chassis Subarus share, you know, essentially all the same suspension, engine, wiring components. Like as we know, that stuff can just swap in wherever. Which means you get a, you know, an old GC or GD NA Subaru, naturally aspirated, if you want. You know, we, we run the two fives in our rally school a lot. Um, swap in str running gear when you want. Put a six speed in if you want. But either way, you can get that chassis, get the best safety equipment for that, and put on whatever the the best suspension you can afford is. Um, and then from there, it's up to you on whatever your budget and your class restrictions are. Um, I'm partial to the flat six. The the NA six cylinders are awesome. Those things are cheap and super stout. You know, And one of those things made it to a sequential sounds way cooler than it actually is.
1: <laughs> I mean, from, from my perspective, things that are considering high on my list is, is availability of Body panels, because yeah, 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 let's, let's cool. be honest, no matter how good you are on, on PlayStation or Dirt Rally, uh, you're probably going to bounce into a few things. So, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense buying something that's unique and hey, maybe it, it looks really cool and people are going to go, wow, when you uh, back it off the trailer at the first event you go to. But um, when you have to replace the, the whole rear half of the car, because uh, you wrapped it around a tree, you probably it's probably going to hurt a little bit when you're trying to 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 find something that's just not available. So yeah, something that's common. I mean, here I, I assume this goes around the world, but we we are looking at the the GC8 WRX platform, and unfortunately, just with all cars, the uh, the used price seems to have just gone through the roof over the last five or five or so years. So uh, nothing nothing overly cheap at the moment. Flip side of that, you, you've got the EP3 Civic as, as a training tool at the Rally Ranch. Is that another consideration? Something in that Honda, maybe not EP3 K20 powered but you know, there's, there's a wide range of relatively affordable front wheel drive Hondas, do they make a good platform as well?
0: yeah i mean i think the early you know uh the EG, Ek civics that's what we started the school on was was on the ek platform the 96 2000 civics um the suspension is awesome i mean the those things are indestructible same design as you get on an integra i love those cars i think same thing applies those are all they've all basically all got stolen and cut up in the states so there's there's you know like 12 left um <laughs> but you know i it's it's challenging because like well on the one hand i'm i'm obviously constantly preaching like be practical buy the thing that you can get parts for it also it's so different person to person some people would rather pay the few thousand extra bucks to like have the custom dampers built for your dream car like great do it who cares like at the end of this thing Neither of us, nor is anybody listening, or who is ever going to encounter this information, going to make a a billion dollar career out of rallying unless they're starting with many billions of dollars. So, like, this is all supposed to be fun. So, at the end of that, you just have to decide for yourself, like, what part of it is fun. Do you love wrenching on cars in the garage with your buddies more than driving? Okay, then great, build whatever the hell you want because you're going to be wrenching on it constantly. If you're in it to drive, though, and I think that's generally where I try to focus. I love the old Hondas. The Fiestas are killer. They're they're super cheap now, and everything you want for the Fiesta, you can just order directly from M Sport, and they'll you know ship you the bolt on dampers. There's four or five different tiers of of uh, dampers. Rear wheel drive. The BMWs kill it. The E36, E46 BMWs. I mean, we got E46s for like three grand with a you know a three liter. In line six and the thing parties and is hilarious it it acts quite german quite regularly and there are a lot of like plastic parts that are exploding constantly and there's coolant falling everywhere um i always say that it just stands for bring more water at this point it's Just <laughs> every part of the cooling system is destroyed but um
1: All right, congratulations! You just got all of our European followers completely offside. Thanks for that.
0: It's okay; they can just hate me. They'll they'll still love you. Um, I mean, they're amazing. Like that. I mean, honestly, and without getting on the tangent, I it's one of the it's the best driving rear wheel drive car we've ever had here. But we just they're they're a challenge to keep running. And every BMW nerd I know is like, oh no, 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 no. And they come out here and they spend a week working on our BMWs, and they're like, I don't know.
1: I don't get it. I mean, ultimately, you can keep anything running if you're prepared to chuck the the national debt at it on a fairly regular basis. So it's it's all about practicality. I mean, I think probably the upshot of what you've been talking about here is this this is always going to be a personal decision. Everyone has a, a budget everyone has their, their aims when they're getting into any form of motorsport and, and that's all completely personal. So what's right for, for you or what's right for myself is, is not necessarily right for anyone else but it's just about understanding the implications of the decisions you're making I think is, is probably the key thing which hopefully we've, we've kind of highlighted here.
0: Yeah. And the last thing I think on that is, is, you know, in a rally car, like we said, suspension is everything. So don't go get yourself a car that has two inches of up travel and leave yourself stuck there. Do some research first. If you have a car that you think would be cool for rally cop on the, you know, the, in, in the U S we've got the North American rally group, but wherever you are in the world, there'll be somebody who, you know, can at least say, Oh yeah, we've built those for this. And you know, it works for X, but you know, that find a, find a good mentor or somebody and ask them questions and say, Hey, is this the worst idea ever? And the, if they're, if they're good people, they'll say absolutely, but it'll work.
1: <laughs> All right, Let, let's uh, just finish off, or move towards finishing off, with a bit of a rundown on on your own rally car, your own Subaru. So, can you kind of give us a, a bit of a understanding of of what's gone into that? What parts make up the whole?
0: Yeah, it's uh, the class we run in is called limited four wheel drive, so it's essentially a uh, production based class. This is a an evolution of a of a class that used to be called production gt in the u.s and that was basically a a four-wheel drive production class the rules in in limited are are interesting it used to be that you basically could only use factory components so you could use a factory engine factory gearbox you could use obviously aftermarket dampers and things like that but it's pretty flexible now so it would be it's essentially the production class that would be just under like the, the open class, which is the unrestricted class at the top of rallying. So we are running a pretty lightly built, you know, forged internals engine from um, uh, a company called Rally Spec here in the US. And that's all built to the, the limited class rules. Uh, as you said, we have a 36 millimeter restrictor on the turbo. We're actually allowed to run either a 34 or a 36 mil. There's just a different boost limit but if you choose to use one over the other, we're running a factory VF 48 turbo stock location. Uh, we are running a, a killer B exhaust manifold and that's all tuned on a link ECU. And then we've got a Motec display for all the fancy alarms and um, logging dampers are the, the big bad uh, Ryger dampers, but it's all factory control arms, factory pickups and factory uh, mounting locations. So there's nothing, nothing special about the geometry on the car. Brakes are a big part of rallying, obviously, because we're like we said, we're the thermal management there is huge. We're using them not just to slow the car down, but to turn as well. So we run a performance friction monoblock caliper up front. The rally cars are specifically challenging because all gravel tires are on 15-inch wheels, so you can't get a gravel tire bigger than a 15, um, which is largely because you want that really tall sidewall when you're sliding sideways. You want to make sure you're, you're you're not sliding the side of an alloy wheel into a big rock.
1: Um I guess that gives some challenges in uh terms of you're gonna have to fit that braking package under a fifteen as well.
0: It does, yeah. And it means and, and not only that, but also keeping in mind that like if you're just because your wheel can clear it doesn't mean that it's ideal fitment because you're always scooping rocks and dust in there. So the tighter the clearance is between your wheel and your caliper, the more it's gonna self-clearance generally into the wheel. So uh that can end very
1: poorly. Another oddity that I, I seem to recall from Rally is around that point you just made is uh, actually building, I think they were called scrapers, basically uh, a little rubber, kind of like the mud flat material inside of the wheel to essentially stop uh, rocks getting jammed between the caliper and the, and the wheel inner, correct?
0: That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, the rear of the car, you've got that uh, that wheel scraper. And yeah, it's just a little plastic panel that's at an angle. And it essentially tries to grab, you know, the rear. Since the rear is sliding, that's where you're capturing the most rocks. And it just sits there to scrape that stuff out, at least as much of it as you can. Um, we're actually still running the 2 pot rear calipers on my car. So that's super crucial because those are super soft.
1: Uh, you, you mentioned 15-inch wheels. I just, it's just a bit of, bit of rally trivia, and I'm pretty sure I'm right here. The ST205 Celica GT4 Group A that Toyota ran, am I I right in saying that actually ran on a 16-inch rim and rally trim?
0: I don't remember. It's possible that, you know, Toyota was up to all kinds of wild things back then, some of them more legal than others, um, (laughs) but that would be, I don't actually know that one.
1: Okay, maybe I'm wrong. It sticks in my mind, and um, yeah, of course, they also lost all their championship points when they were caught blatantly cheating with their uh, their inlet restrictors, which is probably a, 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 a discussion for another day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of you mentioned you're running the X-shift sequential transmission, uh, one of the nice things with the, the later Subarus is the, the factory 6-speed gearbox fixed a lot of the, the woes with the earlier 5-speed glass transmissions which were, were known for falling to pieces fairly regularly uh how much of an advantage is going to that sequential over the the factory six speed
0: it's massive i mean the factory six speeds uh especially as you get into you know late gd and gr and the va the newer chassis of subaru like the focus on on being good in motorsports it took very much took a backseat to uh you know fuel economy and highway gearing so um The factory gearing on those six speeds, like as as strong as they are, uh, they're just miserably long gear ratios. Um, And as you and I were just talking about power, you know, on a circuit, you're just the general nature of a circuit you can get away with with different gearing in rallying though because you're in so many low speed corners you're constantly coming out of these tight corners when you've got terrible gearing it is just miserable it's like a a sequential gearbox that we the the x-shift we put in with that those tighter gears that alone felt like we added you know double the power to the car just because the gearing is so much better um But yeah, that that's a huge, huge upgrade over the six-speed, especially if you think about because we're left of braking. I have to go back and forth between a clutch and a brake pedal with that left foot when you're using a factory gearbox, or you just treat it horribly and you you know sort of throttle blip um, and clutchless downshift, and then you get two events per gearbox. But that that's been a I mean the time savings on being able to stay on the brake is tremendous.
1: You've also mentioned uh, a couple of times now the, the centre diff and most of the production four wheel drive cars from Subaru, from Mitsubishi have uh, some form of adjustable centre diff. Uh, thereby, first of all, giving the ability to adjust based on a variety of parameters, the amount of torque being transferred to the, to the rear versus the front and also just as importantly being able to decouple the front and rear drive when you pull on the handbrake how valuable is being able to adjust that center diff programming to you and, and how do you kind of utilize that power
0: It's huge and and to be honest I think you know like that's just not something that we we've ever spent enough time testing to for me to be able to like to speak with with the like heavy technical authority on but I mean this is a this is a sometimes a second a mile difference on a mechanical versus an active center diff and the ability to map that and and it changed the way that that diff is gonna you know release or, or like we said distribute power torque based on where we are in the stage and what all our inputs on is is tremendous like it is it, it's dramatic so if you you know my pike speed car was was a mechanical center diff that was a completely different animal than when we moved to an active diff it was like oh it's like cheating because now all of a sudden you can have the car behave Completely different coming into a tight corner. You know, you can have the the diff open up coming into these really tight hairpins um, versus what you see at a uh, you know in a high speed high speed corner. Uh,
1: one one last sort of question and a comparison between your your own car. Uh, obviously, you've you just come off a, a class win at the Oregon Trail Rally. Ken Block took that out overall uh, from memory in his Honda WRC. You know, Obviously, very different animals, but sort of where, where, if you could highlight, you know, maybe three or four key differences between uh, a Hyundai WRC and your Subaru. What, what are the most important ones?
0: Well, it's fast. um, It's expensive. uh, It's got lots of fancy little winglets on it, and uh, he had more stickers than me. So there's four, but he, I mean. I, this is this is a conversation about the difference between a, a lightly modified production Subaru and a you know million dollar plus works world rally car. I mean, you know, if you look at the wheelbase alone, the, the, those cars are they're shorter. They're they've got the weight moved in. They're just crazy agile, um, and they're also a, a world rally car, or even the the R5 or the Rally Two cars, as they're called now, don't conform to the same rules, so they have. Know, nearly double the suspension travel that we do. So if you look inside of those shells, sure, it's a, a Fiesta body shell, but the suspension turrets, the the mounting points for the dampers are are you know twice as high as they would be in a normal road car. So watching the dynamics of those cars, you know, I'm I'm like I'm coming into a corner, I'm on the brakes, and I and I huck the car in, and you'll watch it slowly rotate. I mean, we lit we have to muscle the hell out of our Subaru to get it into a corner. Uh, and then you watch Ken or you watch the R5 cars and it's just like they will the car to turn when they can just sort of like, you know, flick the head or a touch of the wheel and the car sideways. The dynamics are just staggering how much more effective those cars are at, at uh, changing direction.
1: And obviously it's, it's not a, a fair comparison I and mean, it's talk and cheese, just budget alone. But I mean, again, it sounds like one of the bigger elements that you've just highlighted there is, is it really sort of keeps coming back to the importance of suspension and the development around around that. And of course, WRC are still limited ultimately with a restrictor. So we sort of still get back to that sort of area where uh, power alone is kind of within reason plateaued across the, the different manufacturers so it's other areas where they're really trying to find that winning advantage uh, look I want to want to be respectful for your time here and uh, we we are getting a little bit long Dave so I think we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this thing up and uh, we've got the same three questions we like to ask all of our guests at the end uh, the first of those is what's next and in the future for you and the rally ranch uh,
0: lots of good things I hope you know we're in the middle of a um of a championship fight for the, the 2022 ARA season in the limited class. Uh, so we've got f- uh, five more, five more events left in the national championship for us. So that's a big focus right now. And that's um, with our sponsors, black rifle coffee, who are also sponsoring Travis Pastrana in open class. Um, and, and telling that story is a big part of our year. We're, we're shooting a show with them called flat out. That's uh, really highlighting Travis's defense of the ARA and uh, Nitro Rallycross Championships that he won last year. So uh, we're that's been a ton of fun. I mean, it's like you know, you think about what would be the most fun thing you could possibly do. It would be invite uh, Travis and Bucky Lassic and all these incredibly talented people together here at the ranch, and for us to just quote unquote train, which was like you know, a guy doing double backflips in a jet ski over Bucky Lassic fishing in my pond. That was how we trained for the season. So that show's been rad. Um, but, you know, same as always for us, just continuing to uh, find more opportunities to get people in rally cars and, and out on stage is, is going to be the future for, uh, for Rally Ready for the foreseeable.
1: Sounds exciting. In terms of your own experience and career so far, everything you've learned, everything you've done, and maybe the pitfalls that you've been through, if you were to give any advice to a younger version of yourself, maybe to sort of fast track that career, uh, what would that advice be?
0: Ask more questions. I think that, you know, as a young, I you know, I was 17 when I got involved in the sport and it, it, fear and anxiety always held me back from being bold and, and just asking for help and asking questions. I think information is just so staggeringly available now. I mean, you know, this podcast is a great example and, and what you guys offer at HP Academy and just the, the wealth of information and knowledge I would have killed. <laughs> To be able to learn the things that I can learn in HP Academy as a teenager, I, I genuinely and, and I don't I mean this all, all joking and hyperbole aside, it, that can completely change the course for somebody who's interested in getting involved in motorsport. So ask questions, seek wisdom, um, and engage with the the free knowledge base that's out there. I love seeing new people come into rally forums and ask what would be a stupid question and get met with a bunch of sure, some memes here and there, but a lot of support from people who've been through this because we all know how challenging that is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've never lived in a a time where there's been such an abundance of that information. So yeah, fair fair point. I I think too many people try and learn everything themselves rather than benefiting from learning from other people's mistakes. That's certainly a, a faster way of getting where you want to go and God knows it's a hell of a lot less expensive as well. So definitely, yeah, solid advice, embrace that. Lastly for today, Dave, if people want to find out more about you and follow your journeys and adventures, uh, where are they best to do so?
0: Uh, Instagram is Texas underscore Dave or uh, at Rally Ready or BRCC Motorsports is Black Rifles Motorsports page where a lot of our stuff ends up as well. Um rallyready.com has all the info on on our classes and school and you know programs there. Or obviously you know find us on Facebook or if you're ever in Texas just shoot us a note and uh, feel free to swing by if you're at Coda for for any number of things. We have a ninety nine dollar rally experience that's just a good excuse. We lose money on it. We figured it's a better place than giving all of our money to Mark Zuckerberg. So um, uh, we'll take a little loss on that. So anybody who's coming through Texas, you know, Chuck is a hundred bucks and we'll put you in a rally car for a few laps and hang out and drink some fizzy waters and pet dogs.
1: I speaking from my own personal experience, yeah, I I can't speak highly enough about the, the Rally Ranch uh, I'm certainly excited to to get back over and come visit and uh, again, yeah, pets and dogs, it's great. Thanks for your yeah. thanks for your time today, Dave. Really appreciate it, and it's been really interesting to get that insight.
0: Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, buddy.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Texas Dave, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that helps us continue to get bigger and better guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have too. I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to the Don who has said, I'm enjoying your podcasts, very informative. I was wondering when checking bearing clearances, there was no mention as to what to do when the clearance is not in spec, like the clearance is too big or too small, for example. On that note, this is a common question we do get asked and the answer is that there are a variety of options available to you depending on the specifics of your engine and how far out of spec you are. For example with a lot of factory engines we can purchase what are referred to as graded bearing shells and these are a way of essentially factory blueprinting and getting our clearance where it needs to be. So essentially by selecting a thicker or a thinner shell we can make very small adjustments to the oil clearance. The other Another option we've got is actually polishing some material off the crankshaft journals. Now I will note that there is a limit to how far we can go with this, but if we do need to increase our clearance just very a very small amount, this is a viable technique. If we need to go further, we can purchase oversized shells or thicker shells and then grind the crankshaft to get our clearance where we need it to be. There are pros and cons with these options though, but In a rough sense these are some of the selections, some of the choices we can make. So thanks for that question there the Don and if you can get in touch with us with your size and shipping details, we'll fire off a fresh tea straight out to you. Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 $25 off the purchase of your first course, you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well, it never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership, that gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm, we dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time.